HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from pretty late this time. But actually, we're only doing a half-hour show, I think, this time. But eh, from roughly 12 to, you know, roughly 12.45, like, uh, you know, 12.55, Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick. Brooklyn. Joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Nastasia? Good. Yeah, we got Dave in the booth. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing all right. Um, Oh, we just got some birch syrup in from Zan. It says, hey, Cooking Issues, greetings from Alaska. Here is some birch syrup from my hometown. Enjoy. And then uh, I guess they're from Homer because it says Homer couple taps tree. So I assume that's Homer, Alaska, yeah? Yeah. Now, the only birch syrup I've ever had before was, and I think I mentioned this on the air, which is maybe why uh, Zan sent it to us, the only birch syrup I've had before was flawed. And uh, by flawed, I mean like extremely acidic, as though something, either the sap was extremely high acid or something had grown in it. And I didn't know whether that's just the way, what you hear crinkling in the background is not mouth noises. Please don't be afraid, Cooking Issues people. It's Nastasia unwrapping the uh, birch syrup. It's wrapped in bubble wrap and aluminum foil to prevent the alien rays from getting to it. One thing I have to say, Zan, it takes a lot of uh, guts to wrap stuff in aluminum foil because you never know. Some lunatic might be like, I can't see through it with my machine, so I'm going to open it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did I ever tell you about the time I ordered that espresso machine and they didn't drain the boiler and they had originally packed it okay, but then when they shipped it to me, a little water had dripped out, so UPS completely unpacked it, and when they packed it, they were like, ah, it's wet, ah, and they threw the entire thing back in the box without the packing, and then rattled it around over and over and over again, and when they showed it up, every single panel was shattered and oh, broken. Geez. I got that espresso machine basically for free, and I'm still using it to this day. Ooh, this looks nice. Um, take a little taste here. Mm, that's good. It is actually tart, but this one is not flawed. So birch syrup must be inherently tarter than, um, what's it called? Maple. But I think this is delicious. This is a much superior product to the uh, one that I that I tried before. You got to dip your finger in that? It's pure syrup, stuff. She's well, drinking it. It's not going I'm not going to go there. I know. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. So what yeah, do you think? Tart. What do you think, though? The taste. It's good. I like it. I think it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And it looks to be about, I have to test it, it looks to be about 66 bricks. 
And the company, for those of you that are uh, keeping track of such things, is Bridge Creek uh, Birch Syrup. Uh, 100% pure, pure birch syrup made in Homer, Alaska. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I always love doing a, uh, a taste uh, test. Uh, tomorrow I fly out to Portland to have some truffles, so more on that next week when I'm back. Anything good going on, Anastasia? No. Nothing good. Have we talked about the House Guest Olympics? No. All right. This is something I think that uh, now this is something that Jen and I did back when we were in our early 20s. But I think it's just as valid now. And I meant to talk to Nastasia about this. This is super valid for you, uh, especially for Nastasia, because she has so many poor house guests. But uh, Jen and I used to we always wonder when people come over, like, who raised you? You know what I mean? Like, where did you come from? Like, how did you show up at my house completely empty handed? make a huge mess, and then just hightail it out and, like, leave me with all this garbage, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how did that happen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Dave, you have this problem? Do you invite people over to your house? Yeah, but uh, I've never really been stiffed like that, not that I can recall. Oh, you have good uh, house... So here's, yeah. what, here's what you do. There's, there's dinner, but there's also people who come and stay at, stay at your place. And so what we did is we started kind of the house guest Olympics, and we would rank people when they came over. And we didn't tell people that we were ranking them. Maybe a little bit we did. But it's like we were like ranking people and we really got a sense for kind of who people were with this kind of a house guest Olympics. Like the, the, the person who clearly wins the house guest Olympics is my cousin Nathan, who whenever he shows up, Nathan, yeah, he shows up with stuff. The guy doesn't like dessert. So like at the end of dinner when everyone's eating dessert, he's in the in the dish like area cleaning all of the dishes. And so he shows up, brings you stuff, has good conversation, doesn't talk about stuff that pisses everybody off. Like is we'll talk. You know how when you have that one person Not like cooking issues. Not like cooking issues. You know how that one person, there's always that one person that you invite who doesn't say anything and you're like, "Oh my god, who's going to talk to that one person who doesn't say anything?" You know who that guy is? Nathan. Nathan's that guy that will go talk to that person at your house. Mm-hmm. And not make it awkward that there's that person in the corner that's mm-hmm. just basically, you know, capillary action sucking all of your wine even out of the bottles. You don't even know where it's going. But they're in the corner, like, sucking up all the wine and not saying anything to anyone. Nathan's the guy that will talk to them and mm-hmm. clean your dishes. So that is, like, that's, like, gold medal, like, 10.0 floor routine, like, house guest Olympics. But I recommend to all you people out there that you start keeping track of the house guest Olympics. And then if you let people know, maybe people get better. Maybe people get better. Doesn't that sound nice, Nastasia? Mm-hmm. You should rate all your friends. Would they all fail? <laughs> no. no, they're not as bad as you, as you think. Is that like if they're not as bad as I think? As that bad, means they're not as bad as you tell me they are. They were a lot younger back eight years ago when I met you. So yeah, but no, but it's like Nastasia. He says something. They're not as bad as you think. The only thing I know about them is what Nastasia tells me. They were bad eight years ago. Uh huh. So you're saying they've graduated? Yes. No offense to the Yellowtail Corporation, but they're, they they have graduated beyond. <laughs> yes. Yes. They're, they no longer come over to your house and say, I'm not bringing any wine because uh, I'm not drinking today. And then they drink wine anyway. <laughs> that hasn't happened in a while. Many like, years. Like two weeks? No. All right. Anyway. House gets Olympics. So uh, we have uh, some questions in. Um, Vincent wrote in from uh, Michigan regarding salting. We didn't deal with any. The only thing we dealt with was rabbits, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I only recently found out about cooking issues and been listening through the back catalog. I'm only at episode 120, but everything's been good. Uh, by the way, what episode are we on now? I have no idea. Dave, what episode is this? Uh, let me check the archives one sec. Yeah, no. Uh, first, I would like to thank you uh, for opening my eyes to the a wonder that is the music of Daryl Hall and John Oates. That's straight out to you, Nastasia. Although you went to go see them in concert. Bad. 
Well, bad for what reason? Were they f- actually bad, or you just they disappointed you because he kept on trying to be younger and hitting on the women? And uh, what's it called? Jamming. Oh, you hate jamming? Yeah. You like hate all them, forms of jamming? No, I mean, they're not jam a jam bands. band. As far as you know, is that the first time you ever saw them live? Yeah. Well, how do you know that they're not a jam band? Well, don't jam bands, like, if a jam band's a jam band, it's played like that on the radio, right? No, I mean, they don't usually, jam bands don't usually get played on the radio. Well, like ever the Almond Brothers. Wait, is the question whether Hall and Oates is a jam band? The, Hall, the question is, is why would you assume that Hall? I mean, I would assume that they're not because they're like '80s, just like you know '80s. Like I assume that they only come out of like boombox stereo speakers. Right. That's what I assume that they come out of. But I mean, like, no, I mean, like people. Uh, what you hear from the Almond Brothers is like Rambling Man. That song's only two minutes and thirty-five or seconds. Grateful Dead. Grateful or... Dead is not played on the radio. Yes, it is. What radio plays the Grateful Dead? They didn't when I was a kid. Yeah, they play them. Like what? They play like the shorter songs, like like Touch of Grey or... No, Touch of Grey was like their least... Yeah, that's the least Grateful Dead song on Earth, Touch of Grey. That was like after like they'd already done anything they were going to do. You ever hear like... You never hear like Casey Jones on the radio, do you? you do. What radio? Not when I was growing up. You don't listen to the radio. I did back when I was younger. You don't listen to the radio now. Not now. No offense, radio people. But the point is, is that when I was growing up... What's wrong with radio? When I was growing up, nothing. When I was growing up, when, like, when the Grateful Dead was actually playing, you know what I mean? And not just, like, doing, like, you know, reunions when they're all, like, half of them are dead. Back when they were actually a band and no one had died yet, miraculously, that stuff was not on the radio at all. You know what I mean? But anyway, I don't know. Do they play fish on the radio? Mm, not that I know of. Not the stations I listen to. Dave Matthews? Yes, that, they play him. That's a jam band. So. Right, but do they play long, like, 20-minute yes. songs on the radio? 20-minute songs? No, I don't think anybody plays 20-minute songs. Did, college like radio. 10-minute. On the radio? Yes. On regular radio? Yes. On radio that these people out here eating pizza would, would uh, <laughs> listen to? I don't think hipsters listen to AM, FM radio. Hmm. They should. They should, oh, it's, they should listen to AM only, but only, yeah. only in mono. Right. This is taking a weird turn. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Vincent. Was <laughs> what was the on. actual question? Oh, no. He just mentioned Hall and Oates. And so we're talking about music and Hall and Oates. By the way. Oh, we've only gotten through the preamble of the little, question. Little story. Yeah. Little story. Uh, Nastasia Lopez. This is a classic Nastasia, by the way. Uh, once bought tickets to see Billy Joel at one of his Madison Square Garden performances. And as anyone who knows us personally knows, both fans of Billy Joel. We like Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up close enough to Long Island. Uh, I don't know where Nastasia got her love of Billy Joel. But, like, you know, I, like, I love myself some Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Nastasia buys herself tickets. Dave, Ticket. you'll like this. Ticket. To go alone, so <laughs> Nastasia buys a ticket, and then that's so adorable. Then we're at an event together, literally working an event. And oh, by the way, it was a garbage event. I don't even remember what it was. And uh, she goes, "Oh my god, I'm supposed to be at Billy Joel. I just missed the Billy Joel concert." First of all, I didn't need her to be at the event. She could have gone to the Billy Joel concert. She knows it. She doesn't blame me for this. She just forgot she had the concert. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker, Dave. This is this is pure Nastasia Lopez. Nastasia. We'll never buy again a Billy Joel ticket, even though she desperately wants to go, but she's going to punish herself because, no, I already bought that ticket, I and, and I didn't get to see it. So now she's never going to allow herself to see Billy Joel again. Even, and this what reminds oh, me dark. is Billy Joel, uh, a friend of mine, Lucia, you know, Lucia and Guido, went to go see him last week at the garden, said, said he did some jams, mm. but said he was great, mm. still good. So maybe someday... Maybe yeah. someday I'll, just, I'll buy you a ticket or maybe some, like, cooking issues admirer will send you a Billy Joel ticket to the... I don't want anybody to pay for it. But 
Nastasia, the only way you get to go see Billy Joel no, in concert is someone pays for you. Who the hell has an extra ticket? Lots of people. To be, whatever, whatever. I don't. Again, I don't know how we got. It. Oh, another thing. Did you know that Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus is closing? Mm-hmm. Do you know that nobody cares but me? Nobody cares but me. Felt sad. Are she going to go? I don't think so. I might go to. There's, it's at Barclay Center in like February, March. I need to find someone who cares to go with me. When's the last time <laughs> you went to the circus? Uh, that's, that's one of those things that you just forget even exists anymore. When and now I guess it doesn't. When Booker was very small, uh, I took him. But I used to. I've, I used to, my grandparents lived in uh, right near Sarasota, so they took me to see them during the uh, during their practice when they weren't on the road because that's where both troops would train. Like they used, you know, they were like a, a railroad only show for a long time. So in New York, they used to uh, march all of their animals from the railroad depot in Brooklyn or Queens maybe, through the um, uh, Midtown Tunnel, and then they would walk from the Midtown Tunnel over to the garden where, where, it was, uh, where it was going on. And so you could go in the middle of the night and watch the entire circus parade all of the animals through the tunnel and out. It was nutty, like miniature horses. Good business. Anyway, end, end of an era. Uh, we should get to the question. We're running out of time. Okay. So here are the questions they have. I read this article, and it's, it's from Food and Wine, uh, written by uh, Oliver Schwaner Albright uh, years ago, like four or five years ago. Where the authors, uh, you can find it on the uh, on the internet. It's called the Juicy Secret to Seasoning Meat. Where the authors' experiment resulted in the conclusion that different meats or cooking methods require different timings for salting the meat for best results. Does this match your experience and knowledge? Is there any sort of best practice guideline for which kinds of meat or which cooking methods should have salt applied at certain times? Um, and then second question was, I had once read that uh, Dongpo uh, pork belly where the – I once had uh, red cooked Dongpo pork belly where the it was so, fat was so soft and tender that it had almost the texture of creme caramel. How can I achieve this? Uh, keep up the good work cooking issues team. All right. So uh, let's go in reverse order. For the pork belly, it's been a long time since I've made that. But if it's not – Soft. I think you have two things. Most people who do it, right, they do like a lot of kind of scraping of the skin beforehand, and some people will even uh, needle it, and this lets like some stuff um, kind of come out of it. And then they do your initial, typically a blanch step, um, and then after the blanch step, then comes the first, which is kind of a braised slash steam over a bed of like scallions and ginger with the uh, rock sugar and the red and the, uh, the dark and the light soy sauce, right? Um, and then after that, uh, so the crappy recipes, which probably aren't as good, just do that until the kind of the meat is done. The good recipes then take it out of that, put it in an individual steamer, and then steam the bejesus out of it with some of the juice, but so that it's no longer evaporating anymore. And they do that until fundamentally the fat is totally kind of broken down. And, uh, you know, everyone has their own recipe, whether they do it skin side up or skin side down. Most people I know. Uh, do it skin side down, then flip it skin side up. Although I saw a place that did it, that flipped it three times, right? So I think a lot of it just has to do with that secondary steam step. I don't know how important the initial uh, scraping or needling of it is, uh, but it's a good product. You like? Do, do you like pork belly when the skin is not crunchy, Stas, or do you only like it when the skin's crunchy? When it's crunchy. Unless it's like in a, in a steamed bun or something like this. Mm-hmm. But you don't like just a big chunk of red pork? Mm-mm. I do. I love that stuff. Dave, you, you like you like the gooey pork belly fat, or do you like it only when the, the skin's been crispified? Yeah, I guess to paraphrase Hollow Notes, I could go for that. <laughs> you could go for that? Yeah, why not? 
No can well they said no can do. That's why I said paraphrase. Well, it's more like anti phrase. Nastasia is more paraphrasing. She's like no can do. There was a steel drum player playing that song on the fifty ninth street. So oh, hate steel drums. Yeah, I did oh, too. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you hate steel drums? Is it because you hate uh Caribbean people? Or like <laughs> That's that's quite a leap, but no. <laughs> <laughs> why do you hate steel drums? I, I don't know. They just annoy me. Yep. <laughs> what about when they have two different steel drums and they can play two different notes at once? Don't care. Ooh. What about the fact that they make their own instruments? That's pretty baller. I guess that's cool. I tried to make one once when I was a kid. You know what I was? Unsuccessful. Like, I was able to... to cut yourself? Yeah. Uh, no, mm, did I cut myself? I don't remember. I was very young, although I remember this. If you people, if you're going to try to make your own steel drum, the most important thing is you have to be able to take the 55-gallon drum and then, like, kind of depress it out, right? And that's kind of what I didn't do. I didn't have enough heat to really be able to bend that whole kind of drum thing out. But I spent the whole dang day doing it, and uh, I just remember being really disappointed because as, like, you know, an 11-year-old, I was like, man, steel drums are cool. But apparently, you guys were like, steel drums are for jerks, and... Not cool, man. Not cool. I don't know. Uh, what is the, I don't know what the cooking issues crowd thinks of the steel drums. Chat room, any thoughts? I don't, I don't know. All right, we'll uh, see. So, to go back to uh, the question of salting. Salting is both uh, much easier and much more complicated than uh, you'd think. Salting does a number of things. Uh, salting obviously makes things uh, taste better, right? So, like, so salt, in general, is good. When you're talking about salting meats before or uh, after or during, what you really want to do is focus on what you're attempting to do with, with the meat. So uh, a very long – a salting like a long time before where the salt actually gets to penetrate into the interior of the meat, right, for a meat that's going to be overcooked anyway – when I say overcooked, I mean cooked above uh, rare or medium rare – then in general, the salt is going to um, – allow the meat to hold on to more water, right? So you're not only going to season it, but you're going to allow the meat to hold on to more water. It has more water absorption. However, uh, it also has a um, kind of firmer texture once it's been salted than it would otherwise. And this is due to a number of reasons. One, and I don't think it's primarily dehydration. I think it's primarily because you're um, solubilizing some proteins that come out and form a gel uh, with it. So it kind of firms up. So salting firm the meat. And you can think about this very clearly if you think about when you salt a fish and you let it sit for a long time, the flesh gets a good bit firmer. The same thing happens when you're doing uh, pork or a steak or, or something like this. And so when I'm going to uh, eat something that is rare or medium rare uh, and I'm going to let it sit for a long time, right, then I don't want to salt it more than about an hour or two before it's going to get eaten because I don't want the interior of that meat to firm up on me. Uh, this is specifically with kind of low temperature cooking. Um, now, uh, if you're going to do it on the grill – Right, then uh, you can just undercook the inside a little bit more, and you could salt it way beforehand. It's probably not going to affect it too much. It'll be a little firmer, but it's not going to be a big deal. But once you cook the entire piece of meat up to, let's say, 55, uh, 55 and a half, it's not that it's overcooked if you salt it a long time before, but it's just a little bit firmer, and it has a little bit less of that kind of um, steak texture that rare, medium, rare has, where it, it starts, you know what I'm talking about, where it goes from that point of being kind of like where it still kind of moves independently. It feels kind of like, you know, like the way Cesare cooks it. It still feels mm -hmm. like uh, 
like like meat, and then it goes all of a sudden to being that cooked meat where it's like one piece now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't kind of move independently, and it's that firming that happens when you salt uh, far in advance on pieces of meat that that you want to have that uh, texture on. And so those are the only real um, things so, uh, that I take into account. So that's you know that's kind of the big. Uh, that's kind of the big difference. So what happened is that person, uh, the one that they hated the most, is they pre-salted the heck out. I think it's it's been two weeks since I read it, but they pre-salted the heck out of a pork loin, which is already kind of garbagey, uh, garbage. It's a good piece of meat, but it's typically overcooked. And then they went ahead and overcooked it, and so they salted it. Uh, they salted it all the way through. Now it's already firm, and so it's going to tend to be dry. I think I can't remember exactly how. The pork loin was the one that, that they had the difference in. Just think about it this. If you're going to overcook it, then salting it, in my mind, is usually uh, good, the way to go, because it's going to hold on to more water. If you uh, And it's going to get textures. If you need it to taste more rare and unadulterated, like pure steak, and you're going to cook it uh, for hours and hours low temp, then salt uh, right before you're going to sear it or something like this. But that's basically what I do. Anyway, anyone who disagrees with me, they're welcome to get on and disagree with me. Hey, before you go, you want to take a call? Yeah, sure. All right. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. This is Chris from Green Zone in D.C. How you doing? Doing all right. What's going on? Uh, got a question. I have been using your milk washing technique for coffee-infused booze from Liquid Intelligence for a while, and it's always worked pretty well, except uh, this last time, last night, I did it exactly as always, as written in the book, and the liquid basically didn't clarify. And so I'm trying to filter the booze out of the milk curds, and it's, I've gone through like three coffee filters, and it's a giant pain in the butt. And I'm wondering what could have happened. Same recipe? Yeah, exact same. Same milk? Yeah, same type of milk. I mean, I'm using full, full like whole milk, but it might have been a different brand. The only times I've had it really fail on me was I've used um, ultra pasteurized milk. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, uh, and it might there might be a range, right? So I'll give you an example. So like I, I normally use regular pasteurized uh, whole milk, um, but when I went to um, Spain last time, they got me that wretched kind of boxed Parmalat milk, which is like ultra highs, like sterilized milk, and right. it, it did not work at all so maybe there's some uh, in between zone in the ultra pasteurizing zone where it doesn't um, where it doesn't work at, you know where where, so it, this, where it partially works you know what I mean this says pasteurized it doesn't say ultra pasteurized but it also says non homogenized so I don't know if that makes a difference would it huh. that's interesting I've never tried it with uh, non homogenized milk before um, I'd be interested to try it with non homogenized milk but you say it did form a curd but it just didn't curd very well. It's no uh, opposite actually happened. The the curds were much chunkier than usual. Huh? But it didn't um, fill. There was a lot of like normally when I do it, it forms the curds and then I put it in the fridge overnight, and there's a clear layer of booze on top. The booze was cloudy. Oh, so there was a curd layer, but the booze layer was still cloudy. Yeah. Huh. I wonder whether. I wonder whether it's some sort of like. Uh, Excess fat in it from it not being homogenized? Could be. Huh. Huh. I don't know. I'll have to test it with some uh, non-homogenized milk and see what's going on. But it could be that... um, It could be that the... 
something about the fat not uh, not coming. Did it still function well? Just didn't look right. Did it seem well, fattier? Mean, I'm, I'm, I've always filtered it through a coffee filter, and it usually it can you know filters out pretty quickly. But this time I've gone through three coffee filters and it's still not done. Huh. I hate coffee filters so much. I wish yeah, I could throw it too. into a centrifuge. Yeah, I'm, uh, I funded the uh, spins all, so I hope it gets into production. Oh, me too, me too. We're working on it. We'll have some more announcements in the next couple of weeks, right, Stas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, I, I, think it's, I, think it's looking, I think it's looking better. I think it's looking good. I think, I think we're going to make it happen. What do you think, Nastasia? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, cool, cool. But, but, yeah, um, it makes but yeah, milk. So when you do it, do you use whole milk, you said? I use whole milk, but I use whole, like, supermarket, like, um, you know, regular supermarket milk, like so okay. homogenized, pasteurized milk. I know it doesn't work with Parmalat, and maybe it doesn't work with, as well with um, without centrifuge with non-homogenized. But it's something to, okay. to check. And it would, I, like I say, I'd be interested in throwing it into a fuse to see whether it would spin out. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it would. But um, all and right, well, I guess next time I'll just try the uh, regular homogenized stuff then. Cool. All righty, let me know. All right, man. Thanks. All right, cool. Uh, Nate Simon wrote in from Sacramento. Do you, what? Do you need to get to your event? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me, let me just take a, uh, do a couple more. I'll, like, uh, you know, start late, end late. Uh, I'm well, we got a show at one. Well, oh, you got Yeah, I'll be, no, I won't start. <laughs> right. I won't end late, late. But I mean, like, you know, later than I need. All right. All right. I'm a big fan of cooking vegetables. This is from Simon, uh, Nate Simon in Sacramento. Uh, what do you think of Sacktown, Stasia? Fine. Fine. Uh, she, she's like, I don't care about Sacramento. Just speed it up. Uh, that's the hand motion that you can't see that she's making. Um, now you made me lose my place. See, I'm a big fan of cooking vegetables in the pressure cooker, which I then puree for soups. I do like the ability of the pressure cooker to caramelize the vegetables. However, uh, most recipes recommend adding a small amount of baking soda to facilitate the Maillard reaction. Remember, though, you got to keep straight the difference between caramelization, which is a sugar-only thing, and Maillard, which is uh, reducing sugar and, and proteins. And we often say caramelized when we actually mean Maillard, uh, but like something like a carrot actually also has enough sugar in it that at higher temperatures anyway, actual caramelization can take place. And sugars, in fact, can caramelize on their own in uh, a pressure cooker under the right circumstances, i.e. with baking soda. So in a pressure cooker with a high sugar item, there are there is actually both Maillard reactions and caramelization reactions going on in a basic environment, i.e. alkaline environment, but it's something to keep track of. I find that even with small amounts of baking soda, less than 0.5%, I can still taste it. I call it the pretzel taste. Um, I'm wondering if the baking soda is absolutely necessary. Could the vegetables just be cooked for a longer period of time and get the same degree of uh, caramelization? Well, again, the question is, is it caramelization or is it Maillard? Is there any other alkalizing agent uh, that can be used that doesn't give that funny side taste? Thanks and best wishes, Nate Simon. Um, I don't know. I haven't run a lot of the tests. You could just try to cook it longer, but longer might mean like twice as long uh, and see kind of what happens. Uh, It's possible also that... If you were to um, allow more liquid to evaporate off, then the temperature would go kind of even higher, but you'd run into some problems with uh, scorching uh, at that point unless you were doing the kind of trivet and jar uh, technique. Uh, I've done some like ultra-high temperature ones where I have uh, pre-reduced, gotten some you know, liquid out, and then put them in, uh, in oil in it, but it's not really safe. I wouldn't really recommend doing it, and I can get like much higher temperatures that way. Um, 
Lastly, I want to make sure that you – I mean you should just try it and see whether you like the result. Just do it for twice as long and see what happens. But I would also uh, say I don't know whether the recipes that you're using uh, have you neutralized the baking soda a little bit. Unfortunately, baking soda doesn't neutralize to uh, salt and um, water the way that like hydrochloric acid and, uh, and lye would do. Uh, but um, it does – it neutralizes to sodium acetate, which has a little bit of a vinegar. Uh, like, you, like a so, if you use acetic acid, then it will. I think it will go to sodium acetate, and, right? Yes, it'll go to sodium acetate, and then that'll have. That's what they use for salt and vinegar potato chips. So, if you want a little bit of a vinegar taste to it, you could try to neutralize it with a little bit of vinegar. You could try to use a tiny pinch of food grade tiny pinch of food grade uh, sodium hydroxide uh, and then but I wouldn't use HCl uh, for it so you're still going to have uh, an acetate uh, ion in there um, when you neutralize it but I would just be careful as everyone knows lye in the kitchen can be dangerous if you don't label your core containers and you taste it like a jerk um, lastly uh, Zach writes in about low temperature uh, meats. My wife family, my wife's family routinely commits war crime level overcooking of any meat. As a result, I'm increasingly volunteer to host or bring entrees to family events. This has led to a secondary problem. They won't eat ev- anything that is even pink inside, poultry, pork, and even beef. I can't bring myself to intentionally overcook, and I think they would actually like to eat things that are cooked much less if they could get past the psychological barrier. So is there a way with low temp cooking to greatly reduce the amount of redness in a cooked piece of meat without actually cooking it more, i.e., could I enzymatically degrade the hemoglobin? It's not hemoglobin, by the way. It's myoglobin. Or otherwise catalyze this degradation at a lower temperature. Um, and then uh, the second point you have is, have you ever noticed that when toasting almonds, uh, that if you taste them well, they are still hot, their texture is odd and off-putting, and, and flavor even seems to be off? I think that's more of a texture issue. Uh, but it, it could be a flavor thing because of the volatiles coming out of it, especially um, if you leave the skins on. But once they cool, they get that great crunchiness and uh, texture. What's going on there? I think what's going on there is is the protein uh it's like a protein gel and when it's hot it um with any residual moisture it's just a little bit rubbery and then when it cools down it gets all nice and solid remember roasting you're actually flashing off uh almost all the water so it's i think it's basically just that that protein gel back to your meats the problem with meats is that uh when you vacuum pack or cook something low temperature in a bag or, or anything like this um you're, a, a lot of the uh, myoglobin is in its deoxygenated state, deoxymyoglobin. Deoxymyoglobin is much more resistant to uh, heat denaturation than um, than um, regular um, oxymyoglobin is. Uh, and so what happens is, is that you have a lot of deoxy left. It cooks. Then when you uh, get it out of the bag, it kind of blooms and gets red. Um, also, in poultry, you have actual actual hemoglobin there coming out of the bones, especially in younger meat. So with poultry, get rid of all the bones, uh, trim out those areas, cook it faster. The, uh, it's been my experience that the fa- faster rates of cooking, so in other words, thinner pieces of meat, faster rates of cooking are going to get uh, better coloration, well, more cooked-looking coloration for you. But uh, allow it to bloom up in a full oxygen environment. 
even allow it to go. If you were to do things that make it look terrible beforehand, like form metmyoglobin, i.e., put it in a microoxygen environment so that it oxidizes, pull it out, and then like expose it to large amounts of oxygen, oxygenated meat will turn brown very quickly. Uh, and so I'm actually experimenting with uh, the low temperature book that I'm doing, uh, different ways to get around this problem since it is a problem. And so as I do experiments, I'll let you guys know. I'll give you more feedback on how to make meats look overcooked even when they're not cooking issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.